You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you are interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of Us needs and appreciates all your support. This Digital Noise episode also has a video version for subscribers at the brown coat level or above. Become a subscriber and get the extended video version. Hungry for adventure? Then travel to a la carte, the charming land below the floating city of heavenly delight, and join the young cook ramen for her daily dose of wacky hijinks in the new series Delicious. With a cast of eccentric, strong female characters, this wonderfully illustrated comedy comic will be out in July, but you can pre-order now by clicking the banner on the page for this podcast. Get the limited hardcover first edition, plus free stickers and an art print as a gift. Wow, stickers! A perfect gift for your child, or those of you who are forever young at heart. One of us strongly recommends this one. always do a big introduction it's digital noise welcome it's blu-rays and dvds we're covering all the good stuff it's gonna be crazy you know what i mean come on if you're coming out that's what we do i don't know what to tell you we cover blu-rays and dvds we cover new releases newish releases we cover re-releases of stuff that are getting better versions of things that's what we do we love doing it we love getting home media stuff we believe physical media still has a future right john physical media does still have a future i bought my first discs in like two years <laughs> i haven't, I haven't bought a, yeah i haven't bought a disc in like no you know that's not true i bought this um this japanese uh crazy movie called a uh, kaiju mono so that's a lie that but i forgot about that yeah it's about a pro know. wrestler who uh he plays a nerd who drinks a potion that gets big so he can fight kaiju on their own scale I can't um, believe I've never heard of this. From the director of Calamari Wrestler. Uh, I don't know about that one either. Oh, so. Calamari Wrestler is great. Calamari Wrestler is better than Kaiju Mono. Calamari Wrestler <laughs> is about a guy who is a giant squid who is wants to be a wrestler. Like That's the plot of it. It's great. Japanese uh, sort of like men in suits films. Dude, I, I'm not judging because I there's plenty of Japanese films I totally love that are batshit insane that are their own thing but wrestling's not as much my thing so i don't tend towards like looking for that stuff well i know it's your thing right while we're on the subject though seek out oh my zombie mermaid that one is a blast that one's a lot of fun a <laughs> is pro that also re- wrestling a pro wrestler's wife is turned into an undead mermaid and the only way he can reverse it is to uh fight his way through this house on a reality show um and as you do, it's so yeah, as you do, uh, it's a lot of fun. But anyways, point is, physical media is alive, and I should know because I have a stack of uh, physical media sitting right in front of me. And my it's house cool. is literally made of physical media, so <laughs> I've been doing wall. this for. I've been doing it. Yeah, you've been here. It's like walls. Like I feel like if the the structural support beams of this house collapsed. The Blu-rays would hold them, hold the house up. It's fine. There's enough. Let's get into what we're actually covering this week, which is going to start off with, I think, one of the biggest releases that we've got. And it depends on who you are, right? Whether or not this is a big release. But I got to say, 1966's Django, D-J-A-N-G-O, right? You probably know it from the Quentin Tarantino Django Unchained, which was more of a tribute to the Django films than an actual Django film, despite briefly having an appearance by the lead of this original that set all this off, Franco Nero. But this 1966 Spaghetti Western from Italy by legendary director Sergio Corbucci, 
is no question for in my mind an absolute classic of the genre it is a very loose adaptation of akira kurosawa's yojimbo i mean like i said just barely an adaptation of that it was referenced in over 30 sequels from the time of this film's release and when it came out although there's only one official sequel with corbucci being involved that also is not as good as this this original one is really really great uh but the director went on to do other really terrific dark spaghetti westerns what they've called his mud and blood trilogy which includes which we previously covered on this show the great silence which i highly recommend but only if you're not like suicidal because it's really dark and the specialists which i've always heard good stuff about but i don't believe i've ever seen but this film with the definitely the film that made franco nero iconic Starts with him as a drifter. He's wearing a you know Civil War Union out uh, uniform. But what makes him very like what is up with that is he's dragging a coffin behind him. And we see when we meet him that he has found this prostitute Maria who's been tied to a bridge, and Mexican bandits are whipping her. And he comes in and I mean they're about to crucify her on a burning cross, <laughs> which is you know kind of specific, but. Django comes in, kills the guy, says, Maria, like, you're under my protection now. They go to a local, very, like, bumfuck Western town. Literally some bumfuck. It's got a bartender and five prostitutes who basically live there. But they're stuck in this conflict between these revolutionaries, these Mexican revolutionaries, General Hugo Rodriguez, and this guy who is a ex- Confederate soldier Jackson, his red shirts. So it basically, and this is not an uncommon spaghetti Western theme, the hero between two things, which way is he going to go? But this is the one that I feel like kind of defined the genre in many ways of that. I mean, obviously, Clint Eastwood's Westerns were a huge deal uh, that were happening at the time, the Sergio Leone Westerns. But this is one I would hold up to just as high regard as those Westerns in many, many ways. And one of the fun things about it is the mystery of what's going on. Like, why is this guy dragging a fucking coffin behind him? And it's not that long in the film. It's like maybe the beginning of the second act before it's revealed, but it is one of the most fun, awesome moments in spaghetti Western history. Yeah, it's a blast. It really is. It's a fun movie. This guy, though, like Franco Nero is Django. He's in his early 20s, dude. He makes me feel like I haven't even gone through puberty yet. <laughs> it's like, he's such a man. And I'm just like, I'm not a, I'm not a man. <laughs> I don't, when, when will I grow up to become Franco Nero? When can I look as grizzled and as, uh, as, as it, rugged and as probably testosterone? Not gonna okay. Well, that's None of us are going to be Franco Nero. Nero. He, he's Franco Nero, John. Like, uh, He's he's like a Bruce Willis in the first Die Hard, but for spaghetti westerns, you're like, yeah, you're never gonna be that guy. What's the but, timeline on the Leone stuff? Is is it before? It's before this, right? This I, is kind of concurrent. Like this was I, a response. I don't know off the top of my okay. head, but I I I think it's very concurrent. All this was going on at the same time. Yeah, and and the Italian cinema industry always seems to kind of like. I mean, you just mentioned the fact that there were like 30 in-name only Django sequels and it's sort of, that's the stock and trade, right? Like there's a thousand sequels to Dawn of the Dead that are not Dawn of the Dead sequels, you know? Yeah. So uh, the interesting thing though is like this one is, it's, you know, if it was originally like a cash-in or a knockoff or basically like striking while the iron was hot, it's still really worthwhile. Like it's a lot of fun. It is, I like the mud and blood um, label because it is very, uh, very muddy. They basically it takes place in like a mud hole. It's very muddy, very gritty film, um, which and- was unusual for the time too, because that was not really the default. This was much darker than anything else that had come out before it. Oh, and yeah. there's a story in the extra features where they're like. Yeah, like they brought us to says like, don't worry, we'll get this all cleaned up. And the director's like, no, 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 don't, please don't. That's why I like this, because it's 
covered in shit. Everybody's going to be covered in mud. It should look awful. Yeah, and a really fun action movie as well. I mean, gosh, I it's like I I have to be really careful here because I was How do I frame this? That cli- <laughs> that climactic moment. Yeah. I was cackling. Cackling and like I didn't it was so unexpected. And so if you've seen this before, you have enough context to probably know what I'm talking about. And mm-hmm. if you haven't seen it before, I just, I can't, I can't even get close to touching it because it did come out of nowhere for me. And I was like, oh my God. And it was great. Like it, it was a, it was a, a, a tight action packed, interesting to look at movie. Like very, you know, I don't know if it's the 4k transfer is really strong. Um, Oh, but it's I, fantastic. But I like yeah. the look of it as well. I like the red reds, like the really vivid red reds. And again, everything is like, everything is like covered in mud and dirt and grime. And, you know, I think about like, um, you know, the Hammer films in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, making sure that there was a lot of like red blood. So this would have been very early for a Western to show this amount of like, of, of actual like red blood, you know, that bright, yeah. vivid red blood. Um, this is good. It was as good as its reputation. I think I, I didn't expect that for some reason. I Wait, think because it's this so... your first time seeing this. Yeah. I, I don't, there's certain, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> certain genres. I don't seek out. I don't seek out Westerns and I don't seek out war movies. Mm. If, if they land in my lap or I hear they're good, I'm open-minded enough to watch them. But they're never stuff that I chase down for myself. Like if I'm if I'm looking for something to entertain myself, typically going to be horror or comedy. Um, if I hear a drama is good, I'll chase a drama. But I don't just randomly choose dramas out of a hat either, really, if I'm being honest. Sure. Um, so I think it's kind of like B-movie exploitation <laughs> reputation made me expect something that was like more... You know, with a lot of those, a lot of those exploitation movies is you have like one good scene and then the rest is like a total snooze fest, but yeah. people praise it because it's like, oh, they saw it at a midnight screening somewhere. And it's like, you know, and it, it's, it's got some, it's got like a coolness factor. This was cool and was also just a really good action movie. Like just, it was and it a keeps really you good guessing. Western. Yeah, it was good. It keeps you it's guessing tough. too. You're like, like a good spaghetti Western, and this is more on the noir side of the spaghetti Westerns, as many of them were, like, where's which way is this guy going to turn? Because he's that sort of gray coat. He's the, you're not really sure where, what, where his mind is going to lay on this thing. He's got his own mission here, and the movie does a good job of not really telling you what he wants for mm. a while. But, you know, the fact that it starts with him saving a prostitute he doesn't even know says, okay, well, he's probably going to come down on the side of, like, good. But he makes some dark decisions along the way and brutally murders an awful lot of people in a very spectacular, bloody fashion. And I got to say, the ending of this, which is very typical for Kabuchi, is super, like, brutal and kind of dark it's not as dark as the great silence which is the darkest ending to any western ever made but like it's iconic as fuck as you're watching it you're like i can only imagine what audiences this time thought about this yeah i think as well for Django as a character it's a matter of he seems to be motivated by if he if somebody's worse than he is morally he's not going to let them get one up on him and he seems to be kind of motivated by that. And it's not even like motivated by altruism so much as if he sees somebody that he perceives as a bigger piece of shit than himself, he's definitely not going to let that person have any authority or superiority over him. Um, and and that yeah. seems to guide most of his decisions and actions. And this is the new Arrow release. It's a 4K, as we already insinuated along the way. It's spectacular looking. They, I, I have the previous Blu-ray that came out of this years ago, and this looks so much, it sounds so much better. This is a tremendous transfer in the definitive version of this film out here. And I'm just saying, even if you've never heard of Django, this is a just buy unseen if you like Westerns, right? It's, it's that level of like, holy shit, this is good. And I don't mean you like you know, American Westerns. I mean, you like super dark, fucked up Westerns. 
This is, it's almost a horror movie at points. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of extras here as well as a commentary by film historian Stephen Prince, who's done a lot of Criterion stuff about Akira Kurosawa's work, but he talks here with a lot of new information about this as well. Uh, it comes with a number of interviews with a lot of people, from Franco Nero, a long interview with him, to assistant mm -hmm. director Ruggiero Diodato, who went on and made many of his own films as well in this genre, as well as, I believe, in horror as well. Uh uh, to Kaburchi's widow, Nora Kaburchi, and there's a introduction that's archival from Alex Cox, who can't help himself from lately from showing up for introductions for stuff to go about things he loves, about the film's legacy. It also, if you get the Texas Adios edition, which is limited edition version of this they're releasing as well, I think a month or two from now, a more standard edition, but this extended edition has a standard Blu-ray disc, which has Fernan uh, Ferdinando's Baldi's 1966 film, Texas Adios, which also stars Franco Nero and was marketed in America and other international markets as a sequel to Django. It totally is not. It was a weird choice rather than doing the actual Franco Nero Corbucci sequel to Django, but maybe that one was better. I did not actually watch this, so I cannot speak to that, but they also did a somewhat of a upload uh, upgrade on this, not as much as they did with the, with Django, but it has its own extra features as well, including a commentary track and interviews and what have you. This is a really immensely solid set for a film that is an all time classic. And sadly, all too few people have ever spent the time with, including John Golson up until this me. point. It's really good. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on to another 4K re-release for the final countdown. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Sorry, I got that stuck in your heads, everyone. I'm not sorry. <laughs> the final countdown is not an adaptation of the Europe song that we just kind of half-assedly sang there. This is actually a film that came out in 1980, a sci-fi war film about an aircraft carrier that got stuck in on a event question mark why did it happen we never really know that mm. goes to the day before the 1941 attack on pearl harbor okay uh interestingly lloyd kaufman from trauma films was one of the producers this was a very early film that he was involved in directed by don taylor and has a fascinating cast of kirk douglas martin sheen james farentino Catherine ross and charles durning it's they make some very odd choices in this film that I feel like if it had been made even a few years later or, or certainly by a different director, it would have been much more pulpy. This is more of a isn't the U.S. Navy awesome type of film. <laughs> Lots of loving shots of procedural things of how they do things on Navy ships and how they would actually deal with the situation if it happened, which I don't think makes this. I think it makes it a little dry, but I don't think it makes it bad. It's a very dad movie. It is. All these shots of like planes landing on the aircraft carrier. It's all very dad movie. This is yeah. like, um, this is, it, this overstays its welcome. I think that's the biggest knock against it is that it, it has the setup. It has this premise that's like, oh my gosh, what if we, what if, you know, we had the means to, to stop Pearl Harbor? What would that mean for World War II? And it just kind of like wheel spins after the premise, like the premise is introduced and then it just sort of sits <laughs> and it's not like nothing happens, but nothing as nothing significant really to that hook. It's all, it, it plays out like a, um, like it might've been a fairly memorable episode of twilight zone if it would have ran 45 or 50 minutes, but yeah. it's not 45 or 50 minutes long. It's feature length and it just doesn't do anything with its hook. It's well made. It's 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 acted competently, but the premise isn't answered. And I don't know I don't know how this moves forward without that. Like I don't know how it just kind of becomes like these little my these little like micro action moments of like, oh a um you know, a Japanese pilot blows up a boat and they bring those people aboard and then they get the Japanese pilot on board. And then there's like kind of, you know, action on the ship itself. And it's like, it's all kind of uh, neutered 
It's all hmm. sort of wimpy. Um, yeah. For something that has such a that has such a strong hook, um, I found this mostly dull at some point. It's one of those movies that it's like you stay with it for a while because you feel like it's going somewhere. And I think there's sometimes in a movie it's sort of like you can you start to notice that it's not, <laughs> and and that's you know, and then it's like then you're just sort of awaiting the credits at that point. You know, sure. and that's the way I felt about Final Countdown. Again, the first time I've seen this, although I know this is a movie that like Blue Underground loves re- releasing and re-releasing and re-releasing. Like any time that there's a, uh, you know, if they could celebrate the the anniversary of every single year of the release of this in every single possible <laughs> format, I think they would. Yeah. I don't know how much of that is the deal they have with Kaufman or not, but um, I feel like Blue Underground has released this to death and. And it, it, it strikes me as one of those movies that I always saw on the shelves everywhere. Like every Best Buy across America always had a bunch of copies of The Final Countdown on DVD. Yeah, um, yeah and now I've seen it and I'm like, it's okay. It's fine. Uh, you know, I mean, there are things I really like about it. I, I think Kirk Douglas playing the captain of the ship keeps feeling like he's going to actually do something heroic and he never does. But he has great moments here. Charles Durning is this person from the past who was a senator who, in this context of the time travel thing, was like, oh, well, different shit would have happened if this hadn't have happened, perhaps. We don't know. Is an interesting take. He's playing it very aggressively. There's a little bit of a love story that is really poorly explored. And in fact, like just plays into there's a scene very in the beginning where it's like your mysterious benefactor and you're like okay well you're looking for it from that point on like someone's gonna stay behind mm-hmm. <laughs> but i think this is a tremendous transfer uh, like really looks great in 4k and i still like it. i'm a big time travel geek john i mean i would still i still prefer the much pulpier and sillier the philadelphia experiment which reverses the time travel thing with a ship from the past coming to the future. Like, was that Michael Pere, I believe, mm-hmm. was in that? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I've always enjoyed that one much more than this one. But, I mean, this is a, like, we were talking about a dad movie. This is a dad movie. Holy shit. Especially if your dad was ever in the military, because this thing is all about, I mean, it's not like worship the military. It's more like, look at all this cool shit we got. <laughs> lots of takeoffs and landings. Lots of... um you know, different rooms in a aircraft carrier just to show them just like, you know, Oh, there's an announcement being made. So we're going to show what it looks like the people hearing it in the mess hall and the people hearing it in the engine room and the people hearing it over here. And uh, not quite, but comes really close to fetishizing like the aircraft carrier itself as a thing. Uh, There are some bonus featurettes here. Lloyd Kaufman goes to uh, Hollywood, which is a 14-minute archival video program with the associate producer Lloyd Kaufman talking about how this happened. They're starring the Jolly Rogers, which is uh, Jolly Rogers is the fighter squadron here that actually the Navy worked very closely with Hollywood to actually make this film. So, like, in terms of effects, it was like, well, we actually had the Navy in a real battleship. So that helped a lot. So I was talking to the actual soldiers that are here. Uh, There's a lot of promotional material, stuff like posters, advertising materials. And there's an archival video commentary by the director of photography that has also appeared on previous things here. This also comes with the the Blu-ray version of this. The soundtrack on a separate CD disc with 23 tracks for about a little under an hour. There's a 10-page illustrated booklet, a reversible cover, uh, and a lenticular slip cover. Man, I, I'm a dork, but I love the lenticular slip covers, John. <laughs> it's there. It's not there. It's there. It's not there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, our next movie is from Criterion. This is also this is a film that, unlike the first two, which I've seen before, and this that those were a revisit, this one is always one I've always heard of and never actually seen, which is 1947's Nightmare Alley. And this just recently is becoming more relevant because Guillermo del Toro is actively, not just like saying he's going to make it, he's actively in the middle of making, filming a sequel, or not sorry, sequel, a remake to this film noir that originally starred Tyrone Power, Joan Blondell, Colleen Gray, and Helen Walker, directed by Edmund Golding. Now, when this film, which was based on a 1946 novel of the same name, came out, it was not widely liked initially. And part of the reason is, A, film noir wasn't thought of very highly. It was kind of thought of as trash film to some extent. And B, 
this movie was much darker than a lot, a lot of it actually was. There's a lot of sociopolitical subtext here or even just straight up text that is disturbing. Well, I think a lot of noirs as well are led by kind of lovable losers, even if they, even if they, um, even if they, they make morally questionable decisions, you still, there's an underlying current of like, you're still kind of rooting for them. I don't know mm -hmm. that that's the case in this film at all. Uh, if you want me to get to the synopsis, I can. Yeah, it's, uh, please. Yeah. Please you do. have this guy that's working as a, uh, he's working in, in circuses and carnivals and he happens to um, pick up an act from a, like a two person act from an old drunk at the carnival who ends up passing away. So now he's one of the only two people that know how to do this, this fake clairvoyancy act. And he ends up using it for his own personal gain becomes like a, a, a huge international superstar based on this act that he ripped off from somebody else. He meets a, a psychologist or psychiatrist who's just as unscrupulous as he is. And they kind of form like a, a weirdly, they're like frenemies, right? They have like yeah. a really strangely combative professional relationship where they both want to get things from the other one. And like all noirs, it isn't going to go someplace happy. It's just going to get like, the situation is going to get worse and worse for our hero. The difference with Nightmare Alley is, He's kind of a scumbag. Like, yeah, he's and, and never the hero. <laughs> yeah, and, and you don't really root for him, which it doesn't take away from the quality of the movie. The quality of the movie is is it's it's really damn good. The only quibble I have with it, and I have to imagine that it didn't end this way in the book. I it did not. really hated the ending. Absolutely hated the ending. I thought that it gets dark, 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 and I was like, oh, this is perfect. Like, this is so good. Because it it's one of those movies like um well we watched the movie creep earlier this year chris smith's creep with franca uh, potente mm -hmm. and uh you know it it when that movie opens she's uh disgusted and grossed out by homeless people and by the end of the movie she looks like a homeless person like somebody throws her a dollar so she's ended up back where like it kind of circles back around on herself. Nightmare I mean, Alley has, that. yeah, Nightmare <laughs> Alley has some of that where you see him be disdainful of people and it loops back around. And I was like, oh, that's perfect. That's perfect and beautiful. But yeah. this is a Hollywood movie from 1947. So they cap it with some sweetness and it, yeah. it completely like uh, not didn't ruin the movie, but gosh, I hated the ending and I hadn't yeah, and hated any of it. And I was like, this sucks. <laughs> Yeah, that was not in the book. It was originally the dark ending where yeah. it was like, hey, comeuppance, yeah. well-deserved. Yeah. I have uh, a I mean, feeling that you – so I know that from – and we've never really talked about it all that much, but I know like you are a uh, very much like a vocal skeptic of like clairvoyancy and like ESP and stuff, right? Yeah. And this and, this is not a believer in clairvoyancy. This is a – that's not real. Right. Like, <laughs> so it made me think you might really like it. Yeah, but there's a little bit towards the end that's like, yeah, but that was what you were doing, which was cold reading. There is real version, which I don't care on this level. I mean, unless you're yeah. like, I mean, it's, I, I can enjoy a thing for the thing, unless it's like being, uh, you know, evangelical about its message. I don't give a fuck. And this is certainly not. Yeah. Uh, I, I do think this is an incredibly well shot film. It's incredibly well acted. It keeps you guessing throughout the whole film. It's a film that you're not going to feel good watching. You're not supposed to feel good watching it. It, it. It's a dark, dark noir. It's all most of it. The first half is set in a carnival and it's awesome. It looks amazing. And they actually did. They just straight up rented a traveling carnival and said, we're going to take you over and do this here and use your actual like performers and everything. And that's cool. Yeah. Last time I was on the show, we did the greatest show on earth, which they shot in front of a freaking green screen, you know, yeah. instead of, instead of, instead of this kind of stuff. So yeah, it was great to see that. I highly recommend this one, and especially because, like I said, there's I, probably early 2021, we're going to get the Guillermo del Toro adaptation, which this is actually kind of perfect for his style. I can see that his 
interpretation of this being really great. But why not watch the classic that, like, although when it first came out, like I said, was kind of shit upon, that had a lot to do with people being like, we don't want to say anything this dark. In retrospect, this is considered to be a massive classic of noir, one of the must-see films, certainly. And I agree. If you're interested in film noir, this is kind of a must-see. That's not the same thing as seeing, saying you're going to finish it and go, I feel good. <laughs> you should not feel good when you finish watching Nightmare Alley. But Criterion did a hell of a job putting this thing together. Uh, there's a vintage trailer for it. There is Todd Robbins, which is a interview with performer and sideshow historian, Todd Robbins, who talks about how actual carnival shows and freak shows and what have you, and then its relation to Nightmare Alley. There's an archival interview with actress Colleen Gray, who talks about being involved in this. Mm. There's an excerpt from an archival inter interview with director Henry King. There is a new video interview with critic Imogen Sarah Smith, who wrote Lonely Places, Film Noir Beyond the City, who discusses this film for Criterion. There's an archival audio commentary that was recorded by film historians James Ursini and Elaine Silver in 2005. And there is a illustrated leaflet featuring screenwriter Kim Morgan's work, The Fool Who Works in Motley. Uh, but... My favorite thing about this release, it comes because tarot cards are a big part of the plot here. It comes with six specially designed tarot cards that sort of feature in the film. So you actually have the tarot cards in the set. I'm like, that's that's the kind of extra. I'm like, oh, that's too cool. I'm so happy that's there. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the remake now. Uh, I, yeah. I, I know it had been a project that he's chased for the longest time. Yeah. Um, yeah, we used to do a movie news podcast back in like 2005, 2006. Uh, uh, and I remember us reporting it then as like his next project. And that was forever ago. Um, so I know he's been he, trying to get this off the ground for a long yeah. time. And, and he's actively filming it now. Yeah. Uh, like I think it's like cast Bradley Cooper and Kate Blanchett and Rooney yeah. Mara and a bunch this of This isn't people, yeah. one of many Del Toro projects that you're like, he said he's going to do it. And then it never happens. This is currently in production. So you will see it. Yeah. Uh, our, our next film is Deliver Us From Evil. Now, I know there's a lot of films out there called Deliver Us From Evil. There <laughs> are. A, a lot. This is a South Korean action film written and directed by Hong Won Chan, starring Hwang Jung Min, Lee Jung Jae, and Park Jung Min. This is one of those Hitman films. It's uh, Hitman. Wants to retire. Oh, shit. We've seen this movie already. Okay, maybe you haven't seen... This movie, I mean, this starts off with a really impressive hitman's last job killing this Japanese mobster that I was like, damn movie, that was cool as fuck. Where are we going from here? Well, it turns out that a long time ago, he was a normal person and was in love with someone. Uh, they had a child together. This person who had and their child have been abducted. The the ex-lover has been killed he is called back to this despite the fact his handler is like, we really need you to do actual jobs and not focus on some personal shit. And he goes, okay, I'm going to go deal with this thing and find out where what happened to this daughter, which leads to a child abduction syndicate for the purpose of uh, organ stealing. And that's not even the part about this that really makes this stand apart because it doesn't. We've heard this all these elements of this plot before we've heard this next element element of the plot before as well but this is what kind of elevates this to being really cool is that because of his last kill turns out that guy had a you know brother not in blood but in name who is going to no matter what avenge his death who is like himself the ultimate hitman and is like if it's the last thing i do i'm gonna kill this motherfucker so it's kind of a chase film with him trying to get away from this guy and save his daughter and who's never met him before. And also there's a transgender character who's introduced in here very for an Asian film, startlingly sympathetically, because that is not always the case unless it's a mythological transgender character. Like in Chinese films or Japanese films, a transgender character, they're like, they have magic powers or some shit. It's like just a, don't like look into it. You'll see here for like a normal person who is not part of that to be a transgender character, to be considered a completely sympathetic character. That is kind of odd for this type of film. And I was here for it and went, Oh, that's cool. The way they used this character and the way it played into the whole story and didn't do some of the things you would expect. And I think by the end, despite the fact that deliver us from evil does a lot of 
stuff we've seen before. It does it very well. Uh, yeah, the you know you talk about the transgender character. It's still, it's still a case where you don't have a transgender actor or actress playing the part. Um, so, you know, I, I say that more for our listeners, um, sure. cause there are some people who really draw a strong political line there and some people don't, you know, in regards to, in regards to who portrays what kind of, uh, human being on screen. Um, yeah. this was sort of, um, there's a particular look of action films that's starting to feel a little, starting to feel a little outdated to me. Deliver Us from Evil has that kind of like, everything is like yellow, um, yeah. sort of early 2000s uh, or maybe mid 2000s kind of a, you know, there's, there's actually the first of two films I'm going to talk about as being like uh, Bruckheimer-esque, like that kind of like Simon, that school of like the Simon West, like not the Michael Bays, but the guys like right below yeah. the Michael Bays, the Dominic sure. Sinas, the, the Simon West of the world. This like piss yellow, everything is like piss yellow, no matter where they are, no matter what time of day it is, no matter everything looks like it's just, it's constantly golden. I like the globe, I say globe trotting. It's actually like pan-Asian. I liked the pan-Asian aspect of it. The fact that it was like you had uh, Korean people and Chinese people and Japanese people like, and I think they were in Singapore for a good mm -hmm. chunk of the movie or something. But they, I liked the... Um, I like the sort of like country hopping aspect of it. Um, but overall, I thought this was just mediocre. I think action fans, pe there are people who seek out action movies the same as like, I'll watch a bad horror. I, I think this is like that for action fans where it's like, if you already have an open mind and you just devour action, you'll probably be satisfied by it. But I found it, I found it derivative to a fault and, and a little dull. So, I mean, to me, I, I understand what you're saying to me. I, I'm not a hundred percent one of those action fans. There's a lot of, like, I can't go back and watch. I, I'm when Van Damme puts out a new movie, I don't give a shit. Yeah. Uh, but there <laughs> are those not, people who do. And those are the kind yeah, of people I'm talking about where it's like, Oh, the new Seagal is out. And I'm like, Ugh. yeah. Why would you care? Yeah. I, I do not. Uh, but I do tend more towards that level on the Asian level. And especially, I mean, although Hong Kong's film industry has certainly been turning in disappointing results ever since they signed a blood pact with Saudi Arabia, I guess, for uh, producing all their movies and all their stuff seems a little too uncomfortably political. <laughs> It's the equivalent of the Rambo, Rambo first blood in China going on right now with every film. It's like, oh, everything has to be about how great China is. You know what it but, reminds me of? It reminds me of that rash of, I don't know if you remember when Fox Faith was a label and they would release these Christian movies that wouldn't be Christian at all. A great example is this movie three, which was like a serial killer movie that they released theatrically. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a Christian movie and a faith-based label and it plays out like any other movie except at the end they're like, let's pray together. Or at the end, they're like, if only, if only he trusted in God and then the credits roll. And there's some of that with these Hong Kong movies where it's like, it's, it is, it's straightforward. It's like any other action movie. And at the end, it's like, and if it wasn't for the brave Chinese military, we never would have yeah. like, <laughs> uh, anyways. Yeah. And we have another one yeah. actually in this very stack. Well, this one is Korean though. This it's is Korean. not Hong okay. Kong. Yeah. So we don't have any of that, but I will say that despite all the, yes, we've seen a lot of this stuff before. And despite, yeah, everything is piss yellow. You're not wrong. There's some really solid action in this. And I think if you're somebody who likes Asian action, I think uh, like heroic uh, gun, uh, heroic gunplay, I should say heroic bloodshed, then this is a film I think is well worth seeking out. I don't think there's a lot of original here, but there's enough to make it fun. There's a brief making of and a filming location thing and uh, trailers. There's not a lot of extras, the well-go thing, but, you know, I did like this. Let's go on to Sheep Without a Shepherd, which is another Asian release, only this one is from Artsploitation, working now. Artsploitation is now releasing through Kino Lober. I've seen some people call this the one of the best films of 2020, John. Mm. I know that's cool. an extreme, <laughs> extreme take on this film. That, so, like they only put out on DVD, not Blu-ray. So I'm like, if it was so good, then <laughs> it was apparently a huge hit. And this is actually what I was referring to. I, I wasn't referring to Deliver Us from Evil, but this movie in particular that has that kind of like it plays out 
like you would expect. And then it also has a little bit of like, and the Chinese police are the best police. This is a movie about a movie, a movie nerd, um, uh, who, (laughs) he loves action movies. He loves cop movies and his daughter and wife accidentally kill his daughter's abusive stalker. Yeah. And based on the fact that he's so immersed in these films, he kind of knows what to do to like help the family cover up this murder that they committed. And then Joan Chen is top build, but actually doesn't have that much screen time. Uh, and she plays uh, a, a, an investigator on the case of, of trying to get to the bottom of this because things don't add up. Um, yeah, She's the police chief who is the wife of a major political candidate right before an election is happening, which of course, like plays into the some of the political subtext here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I don't know how big of a star Xia Yang, who plays uh, Lee, the main character. I don't know how big of a star he is in China. So I don't know if the Joan Chin thing is for American audiences. I don't know if she's you know she's on the cover and she's top build. I don't know if that's more for us or if she's mm-hmm. top build actually in China. I don't. I, I, don't I think for us actually. Yeah, yeah. maybe that case. Um, I thought this this is like there were things about this that I liked that were like. Um, it was like the serious version of Hot Fuzz in a way. How Hot Fuzz, <laughs> Hot Fuzz references the fact that like Hot, there's the whole stuff about like, oh, these cop movies look and feel a certain way, and so we're gonna have those moments replicated in the movie. And in Hot Fuzz, it's for humor's sake, and in this, it still has the meta where the guy loves cop movies and he knows that certain things are certain ways in cop movies. It still has that like knowing meta quality, but it's all done in the service of drama. So when you see a scene that's like a funeral scene or they're exhuming a body and it's raining and it's slow motion and you have the overhead shot of the, you know, the, the coffin coming up out of the grave and and they're looking at each other and rain is like splashing on their face in slow motion. I'm like, this all looks like Michael Bay action movie stuff. And I'm like, and I know it's on purpose because they already referenced that at the beginning, <laughs> but I've never seen something do that and not play it for laughs. I've never I, seen, I I've never it... seen a film do that and, and then kind of go, but this is the serious version of that. I, I felt like it was playing it for laughs when I watched it. And oh, I yeah? really, one of the things I liked about this is, was that it took a while before you realized you're watching a con movie. Like, it incorporates just as much from the heist con movie as it does from all those action films where there's a point when it goes into the third act where like everything is not how you've seen it before. Uh, There's a bigger game happening here. There's a lot of like, you know, I mean, I really expected them to play the theme from Chuck at one point towards like, (laughs) you know, that thing where the guy's walking confidently down the brief, the the corridor with a briefcase in their hand type of thing. You're like, okay, that, that it got to that movie and it's a weird, Weird crossover of shit that kept doing stuff I was did not see coming, which I enjoyed overall. I enjoyed quite a bit overall because it was wow. I, I don't know what this is at all. I'm keep going. What kind of movie is yeah, this? Yeah, it, it starts but, really light and funny, and then it's yeah not. But it's light and funny for like a good half hour until it's not. <laughs> and then there's an end scene that's like, wait, what is happening? And you're like oh shit, there was something in the very beginning of this movie that and then they're like, before this, and like, wait, what? And then I'm not even clear, because I went back and rewatched the beginning, and I was like, so did that even actually happen? Or is that part of his film fantasy? Which annoyed me at first, but the more I thought about it, the more I was like laughing about it. Like, okay, I guess that was kind of funny, but I feel part of it was just like a cultural thing. I don't know. I thoroughly enjoyed the fuck out of this the weird little film that's imperfect certainly but just constantly kept me going what's next yeah this is pretty good i hope i hope kino decides to release it uh in a, in a better format than than dvd um i don't know if there's better digital formats uh for this movie but it deserves i think a better format and honestly feels like something that um you know i i don't know i didn't get the sense that this necessarily made the festival rounds but it strikes me as something that like that I would have seen and heard people buzzing about it, like a fantastic post or a South by or something like that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause it kind of, cause it does sort of like play with genre in a way that typically film fests like to program. They like to program those kind of movies that, that are international movies that begin to sort of like smear the lines of 
whether something's an action movie or a comedy or a satire or whatever. Um, yeah, this is, this was pretty good. Um, it was, uh, I, I probably liked the, the first hour of it or so more than I liked the, the second half, but I still liked it. And I do think Sha Ying is really, Sha Ying is really, um, like a very capable leading man in a way. Very likable. Yeah. Very likable. He's not, I, you know, leading man I, that brings to mind like, Oh, I'm not talking about like a George Clooney type. Like he's a, he's a schlubby, like family man, dad, movie yeah. geek, and is believable as that. Um, but still can carry the movie. You're still interested in him and invested yeah. in him. And the scenes that focus on him are, are typically always the most interesting scenes. So it was, it was good stuff. Well, we've got another Chinese film to talk about that I'll tell you right now, John, was one of my favorites out of the stack. Although oh. it started as one of the ones that I was like, this is going to be dull. Isn't oh, man. It? I'm so happy to hear you say that. Yeah, this is Nina Wu, a 2019 Taiwanese, which I guess both China and Taiwan would be upset to hear me call it China. But because look into it. Okay. But directed by Midi Z, this came out originally at the 2019 Cannes Film Festival and under the Uncertain Regards section of it. And I had no idea what I was into in for when this started, because it's like following this actress, the titular Nina Wu, who also co-wrote the, wrote the script, apparently based on her own real experiences working, who gets a big break with a leading role in a spy film. And... It's uncomfortable at first because, like, she's like, oh, well, you are going to have to do nudity. You're going to have to do explicit sex scenes that are in this. Not porno, mind you, but, you know, very explicit nonetheless. The director's kind of a jerk, but everything is saying she is about to, like, this is that breakthrough point where everyone's like, you're great. You're so good. We're really excited. This is going to be the point where you move to the next thing. So the first half of this film, although exceptionally well filmed, like, we're like, holy shit moments. Like, this guy, I kept thinking, this guy's the Chinese Wes Anderson in terms of cinematography because he kept finding these gloriously symmetrical places to shoot from. It's <laughs> like, that's amazing. Look at that shit. Very visually attractive, but there's not a lot really happening and then you realize about the halfway point what you're actually getting here is that this is kind of a chinese mahalan drive <laughs> it's gets more and more hallucinatory it becomes less and less clear what's actually real and what actually isn't there's a lesbian subplot that is very important to the larger context of things, but it only takes up a small part of the runtime here and you get to a film that by the end, I understood everything that had happened, but you have to really be paying attention. And I felt that that attention was really rewarded. Man, you, I loved this movie. And yeah. it's really about, you have this person who keeps being asked, they want to be an actress and they want that this is like their drive, their ambition, their goal. This is what they want to do. And every time that they're handed an opportunity, they have to give themselves, they have to give up a pound of flesh. Basically, every time, every time that they have, that they have an opportunity, they reach a crossroads where it's like, how much of myself am I sacrificing for this next action? And as she continues to whittle away at pieces of herself, she starts to lose her mind. And it's so freaking good. And it's a, it's tragic because you know as the film progresses that anytime she's put in a situation where it's career or self, she's gonna choose she's gonna choose that career, career and she's gonna sacrifice some piece of herself. And we're gonna know that. Like they're gonna illustrate that on the screen that like this act of degradation or this act of Sometimes it's not even degradation. Sometimes it's just a matter of having a crappy director, you know, and you've kind of accidentally given a good performance in something. But it's a matter of getting there, getting to that moment. You know that she is, she, her identity is, is literally burning away in front of our eyes. One of the, one of the best <laughs> juxtapositions in a film that I've seen in a long, long time are the scenes where she kisses her former lover and then the scene where she's asked to have the lesbian love scene and the kisses are so completely different. One is like deep and, and like passionate and like meaningful. And the other one is so 
awkward and weird and difficult to watch. Yeah. And those two scenes juxtapose like, and they take place a good chunk away from each other in the movie. There's probably like a 40 minute distance between those two moments in the film itself. But when she had the scene where she has to perform uh, with another actress and they have to make out or whatever, it was just like, it was so like none of what we saw of herself in the earlier scene was present in that scene. It was a great way of illustrating again, that point that that part of her exists there further back in the movie. And it doesn't really exist in this moment now. And that so good. This, I really did love this a, movie. She has this own idea of who she is and what's happening to her that often make up sequences that you think are, they're straightforward enough that you think that's what's really happening. But it appears not to be as it goes along. It definitely starts aggressively building in the second half with its what's real, what's not, but never losing you either. You're they've already invested you in this person and their, their journey. And like I said, the reward is by the end, you do know what was real and what was not to the most part. And mm -hmm. what you didn't, you get that like, okay, well that was metaphorical, but in a way that told you everything you needed to know. Yeah. I found this exquisite, John. I really did. I think this is a shocking uh, lack of foresight that this was not promoted as being a much bigger thing here in America, because I think this could find a huge audience. Yeah, it was quite good. It's honestly, you know, I, I don't know. It's impossible to keep up with when foreign releases are eligible for things nowadays, but this is easily in the top five movies that I've seen this year. And it, I wouldn't mm. be surprised if it ends up in my top 10. Um, I really, really like this. It is a care. It is a character piece. Um, it is all, you know, it follows this character. It's all about the character and it's character. It's character driven in that way that it's literally not plot driven. So for listeners who, you know, know what kind of films that they respond to over other kind of films, if you like a really strong, examination of a character where that's that's what the movie is man nina Wu is is really out of sight it's really really Ex good. exceptional and this is on film movement so my hope is that uh, i assume that it's on the film movement streaming network as well so if you pick that up you'll get to see this among some of the other good stuff on there uh i yeah i can't recommend this one highly enough i, I think it's one of those like seek out go out of your way for especially if you're one of those people like me who loves maholland drive i think this is like it's, it's definitely not a remake of Mulholland Drive. It's not stealing anything from Mulholland Drive, but it has some similar themes and similar ways that it does things. And I think it makes it completely different type of film as almost more of a sort of nod to the head to that film than anything else. Yeah. But yeah, highly recommended. Uh, we're going to move on to another film from Film Movement, which is The Columnist. Now, this was an interesting little one that was not on my radar at all, but man, Film Movement was pimping the shit out of this Dutch black comedy thriller that came out in 2019, directed by Ivo van Art. Uh, it follows a, a person you're going to go, wait a minute, how do I know who this is? Katja Herbers. You don't, you don't know the name offhand, but you do know her. She played a character in The Leftovers on HBO. She played a character on The Americans. She was on Manhattan. She was on Westworld. She's on, she's the lead character in the show Evil on CBS. You know who she is. You've seen her before. So I was like, oh, who is this person? She plays a newspaper columnist that's dealing with a lot of issues with her publisher, who's like, you need to finish your book you're doing. And she's dealing with an endless amount of online people harassing her because she's very, very, very feminist. And people are just being abusive, toxic pieces of shit online. She's got a child of her own. She's trying to shield her child from some of the stuff that's going on. And through all this, this amazing stress that's going on and her fresh romance with a novelist named Steve, who she meets initially very antagonistically on a talk show, but ends up, you know, becoming genuinely, uh, you know, emotionally involved with, she breaks and starts going out and killing, tracking down and brutally murdering the people who are harassing her online. And as someone who exists online, you go, girl. <laughs> John was that is there any part of you there's like you know that this is supposed to be an object lesson here and there's obviously a lot more going on than just the you know the surface but like I I admit there's part of me is like man 
what a nice little fantasy of like the guy is like you suck and everything you do sucks and you're like two weeks later you show up to his house with a chainsaw <laughs> yeah it was entertaining it it is um it's it is uh <laughs> it is entertaining i'm i'm trying to think of how I, how i would like i don't think there's i i think it ultimately is kind of a shallow movie yeah, I, I, don't, agree. I don't mean it as an insult, but no. it, uh, it, it's a horror film and it wasn't selling itself as much like a horror film. Yeah. I think you think it's gonna, it's gonna expand or get deeper or have some greater point to make. And it doesn't really, it's just about a vengeful killer of trolls. Um, but entertaining the entire time. I actually really liked, you know, there's a part of me that, um, really resisted, parts of this film because of how much I was invested in the relationship between her and the guy. Cause there was, there's so much setup in the fact that it's like, okay, he's on a talk, he's on a talk show interview with her and they're at each other's throats and her daughter reads him. So she has some professional jealousy because her daughter's a big fan. And yeah. then they have their little meet cute. She finds out, Oh, he's totally different than she thought he was. And the daughter is like that morning, the morning after scene where the daughter walks into the room and she can tell that they both had just done it was great uh, and funny. And it's like, there's like a, uh, there's like a worthwhile rom-com that's quote unquote wasted in this movie about like a killer who is killing trolls. And there was a part of me that resisted some of the stuff because I was like, I just want to see them be a couple and like learn about each other. <laughs> it sounds weird, but they do a lot of character setup. They really do a lot of like building of stuff that really makes you want for the situation to change. It doesn't change. She's a, she's a, she's a killer. <laughs> it's, a gr it's a, such a great setup and the characters are so much fun. Like all of them, the daughter is fun and interesting as well. Mm -hmm. Like I like everyone in this movie, except for the trolls, but who are all interestingly defined that I'm going, I, you know, I rarely go, this deserves a like international remake an American remake, but I don't want to see a movie remake. I think this would make a great television series, quite frankly, oh, of yeah, like I a, a Dexter type show, but for this person who's going out and killing trolls and is their whole thing, but trying to balance their regular life. I was like, cause this is kind of delightfully fun, but there's not a lot beyond the surface here. I mean, they act like there is, but it's also on the immediate to see like, okay, you don't really have anything else to say, but yeah, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a it was a a, uh, a dark good time, not not yeah. a uh, not a happy light good time, but it was a dark good time. It was a it was very entertaining. Well, our last film this week, because I'm skipping the one you haven't seen, because I'm running out of time. Quite frankly, uh -oh. is Spare Parts. Okay, I am so curious, John, because this is a movie that. When I started this thing, I went, uh, and I didn't even ask for this thing. It was, I don't even remember how I got it, but I was like, uh oh, like one of those super schlocky looking things with like a super schlocky looking cover with a bunch of hot chicks with weapons on their arms and things exploding, dudes with chainsaws on their arms. And you're like, and people dressed all in leather and vinyl. Okay. I, I get sent stuff like this, and 99 times out of 100, it is just unwatchable and just gross and betrays the feelings and the things about the people who made it that they're kind of gross. The spare parts kind of surprised me. I'll be honest. Uh, it features an all girl punk band that is named right off the bat. This is where I start upon starting watching it went, okay, maybe called Ms. 45, which of course named after the famous rape revenge film from the seventies. Was it seventies? Seventies, right? Oh, we'll say 70s. It was yeah, either 70s, that or sure. early 80s. They're all girl punk band. They're playing a rough dive bar, uh, you know, a gig there, just bumfuck nowhere. And there's a huge fight. And they're like, yeah, we love fights. And they start beating the shit out of like a bunch of toxic dudes or harassing them. And you're kind of like, right, I was going, okay, actually, I'm interested now. This is fun. I kind of like where this is going. These badass chicks beating the shit out of a bunch of douchebags at, at, at a trash bar. But they're like, okay, well, we're going to leave. They find out they're, they're having some car trouble. They call for a tow. They end up in the last place you want to be, uh, another small town nearby, led by a creepy cult leader who has set up the whole thing as 
a sort of Roman Coliseum, uh, played by Julian Richings, by the way, who I know more specifically from Supernatural, who played the Grim Reaper on there. But you, he's one of those guys you've seen him and stuff. You know him. Uh, he, he plays creepy characters all the time. So they're like, they're locked in, knocked out with gas fumes. They wake up, but they've cut off their arms, leaving the bone sticking out of their arms and have set it up with like a, this metal thing so they can click attach like various weapons, super weapons onto them, like an axe or a chainsaw or what happened. So they're like, ah, oh, fuck. And they have to go fight other people to survive. And there's a lot of other side characters going on, a lot of like sort of what's happening. There's like the son of the guy who's running the whole thing, who wants to fuck one of the main characters here. Two of the characters are sisters. A lot of it is about the two sisters who have a lot of bad blood between them and how will this play out here. It's very gory, but in kind of a, in a way that sometimes very gory films can just be a little like, okay, we get it. It, it looked good, but move on. And this one is just sort of like, I felt gleeful about it, like just long enough to go, that was ridiculous and fun and let's move on. And the whole premise is ridiculous, but it keeps moving so fast and it did things with the characters I didn't expect. It didn't reach that point like, okay, here's the premise and now all we have to do is show you gore. It's like, no, there's actually stuff that keeps you guessing. What will these characters do? How will they actually respond as things go on? And you start realizing none of them really like each other all that much. I had a great time with this movie in the long run, John, but I totally get that this is not going to be everybody's sort of thing. And judging by your face, I'm thinking it was not your sort of thing. It was not my sort of thing, although <laughs> I don't disagree with you. I think the I think the lack of funding hurt this movie in the long run. I think it's just too cheap. It's uh, it looks cheap. The the weird hand weapon stuff never that always looks cheap. Like it's, um, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's just kind of like noisy, nonsensical. Uh, yeah. 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 But yeah, everything you know, you're saying is good so far. The acting, <laughs> the acting is not bad for this kind of thing. You know, the idea, the writing isn't particularly quote unquote bad for this kind of thing. I just think that the, the reach over extends the grasp a little bit. I just don't think that the filmmaking fundamentals and the, and again, lack of funds, I think keep this from being something that I could, that I could recommend. Although, you know, mm -hmm. I, I appreciate the fact that those qualities that are good about it are sound qualities. It just never came together for me because I just thought it was a little too DIY for what they were trying to do. It was too ambitious for its own good. I gotta say, I was really impressed with the quality of the gore, though, here. And like I said, I think they held on it just long enough. But the gore was not only good looking when it happened, but it was funny gore. There's a sequence where, like, somebody's face gets spun off by, like, a motorcycle a tire and that looked fantastic i really liked it and i liked that this one of the things this extra features does is just feature how they did all the effects and is but is also done almost like a gag reel at the same time where they're yeah. like it's just this big effects crew that clearly are the same people who just flat out made this movie on every level they made this movie to make fun gore effects who are having a great time figuring out how to do it all and it's kind of joyous watching them do it it like reminds me when i used to work at haunted houses like wait how, cool idea but how are we gonna pull it off like really enjoyed that level of it there's a decent amount of making of stuff in particular here uh, it comes on blu-ray and dvd here there's a commentary for the director and cast and interviews fight training because there's a lot of fighting which admittedly is the least convincing part some of the fights are like okay well that was all editing but you know the person who doesn't watch a shit ton of like action movies you won't be able to tell the difference it's not like egregious I, I knew going into this, I was like, the odds are John is not going to like this movie, but something about this really appealed to me. And I was like, this is a movie I would show a crowd of drunken people who would totally get into it and have a great time. Sometimes it's a roll of the dice. And I, and I think that the bigger the movie got in scope and scale, the, the less I liked it. Um, hmm. So again, I, that's why I think it's really just a matter of like, to me, and I, and I don't disagree that the gore is fine, but just the overall production value of it just being on the side of a little too much on the side of DIY for what they were trying to pull off. So that's, that's just me. Well, that is it for this week. John, 
I think I already know the answer, but what is your pick of the week? Oh, my pick of the week in regards to, I'm going to go with Nina Wu. I do think you should seek out um, Nightmare Alley. I do think Nightmare Alley is worth watching, obviously, um, and is a great Criterion package. Um, but if you want something you've never heard of before, uh, yeah, Nina Wu is one of my one of my favorite movies of the year. Yeah, I mean, for the set, there's no question Nightmare Alley is like the one that they put it all out there. It's an all-time classic. I had never seen it before, so it's new to me. But I was so deeply impressed with Nina Wu and the fact that it came out of nowhere and that I want to promote this film that it's not going to be on anyone's radar without people like us going, please watch this fucking movie. That Nina Wu was my pick of the week as well. Easily. So good. So good. It's exactly what it was like when I was a young ingenue going into Hollywood. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was trying to just make it work with my lesbian lover, but they kept trying to make me have sex with producers and stuff, and I was hallucinating my ass off the whole time. Barking you like remember, a dog. John. I remember You produced one of those films. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you son of a bitch. And people can see it on, if they're a Patreon <laughs> subscriber on the highest level. <laughs> we don't have Patreon subscribers, but sure. I'll That's uh, fine. Throw, in, throw in a box of... Uh, Throw in a box of Kleenex. <laughs> Anyways, I'll shut up now. That, that, that's right. We're going to get each other in trouble if we get any further there. But let, uh, thank you, John, for joining me. Do you have anything new that's out that you want to point people at? Uh, MrGolson.com. I have a website now. Oh, um, wow. Yep. So Is that go, Mr. M-R? M-I-S-T-E-R. M-I-S-T-E-R, Golson.com. It's strictly a portfolio site, but if you want to look at some of the, you want to look at some of my artwork, it's there. You should probably link digital noise on that thing. I'm just saying. Oh. Just saying. Okay. For the SEO. For the sweet, that, sweet SEO. That was my only criticism. <laughs> anyway, we'll be back very shortly with more digital noise. Thanks for listening, everybody.